0: people feel very pressured to be good PR for the polyamory community because because polyamory like when you when most people find out about it they do think it's cool but they also kind of are very skeptical about it and they're like oh well that will never work you know open relationships don't work so I think they feel very pressured to represent um, a good
2: On this episode of the multi podcast, we're talking to guest Lola Phoenix. They are a queer, non-binary, disabled American living in the UK. Lola writes and produces a weekly advice column and a podcast called Non-Monogamy Help. Lola also writes personal essays and articles on a variety of topics on social justice issues from gender to disability to poverty in public publications like the Huffington Post, Gay Star News, Everyday Feminism, as well as many others. And in this interview, we covered a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. We went through a whole lot of different things from um, understanding kind of what jealousy is and isn't, and when that maybe isn't the most helpful way to think about things, to how you can't just virtue and communicate your way out of a bad relationship. um, Yeah. I mean, we just covered so many things uh, that are relevant to non-monogamy as well as to any type of relationship.
1: Yeah. It was fun talking to someone who kind of exists in the same sort of medium that we do. Like Lola has a podcast and Lola also writes and creates content. Um, But it was really fun talking to someone on some of these issues that sometimes like getting more into the nitty-gritty and like the kind of as you said like the 201 or 301 issues not just Mm. the polyamory 101 for newbies so that was really fun getting to do that with Lola
3: definitely and with that let's go on to the interview all right Lola thank you so much for joining us today
0: thank you so much for having me so I'm gonna
3: just dive right in here and um in, you're a very prolific Medium writer. Um, for our listeners out there who haven't followed Lola, I really suggest that you go to Medium and follow Lola. They do put out some really interesting work. Um, You've in, done
1: way more than like anyone else that I know, <laughs> by the way. Thanks. It just is like pages and pages and pages and pages. It's so impressive. Yeah.
3: Thank you. So in one of your pieces, you mentioned something really interesting. And it's this idea that relationships are not skills that you can build. Um, And that piece, it really struck me because it it reminds me of something that we often say on this show, which is the idea that love itself is not enough on its own to make Mm -hmm. a relationship work or that you can't like communication hack your way out of an incompatible relationship. Um, Can you elaborate a little more on that? Because I do feel like a lot of advice out there, not even just for people in non-monogamous relationships, but for people in traditional relationships as well. There is this idea of like if you just do the right things, or if you learn the right skills, or if you get the right communication skills, then you can make any relationship work.
1: You'll win the relationship game.
3: Something like that.
0: Yeah, I think it comes from a very understandable place. I think like I think people want to believe and they often when they start off in polyamory, or even I think to a certain extent, in, in monogamy, if you see someone who has been seasoned, more or less, or has a lot of relationships, or seems to have had more, quote-unquote, experience um, in the community, or in polyamory in general, that they would know more. Um, mm. And it's not altogether, like, a terrible assumption, like, you would hope that if someone's had quite a few partners, they would have learned that people communicate differently, they would have learned different strategies for how to communicate differently. Um just the same as like with a job, you would hope that, you know, the more experience a person has at a particular job, they would know more about how to do that job effectively. Um, but it's so dependent on the individual. Mm. Um, and it's it's also not one person. Like no matter the way the relationship is structured, whether it's two people, three people, it's it's sort of like saying that you can create a team project all by yourself, mm. and that can you know I mean you, you certainly can. I've been in situations <laughs> in school where I've done the project, right? Haven't we well,
1: been you've there? Done all been? Yeah, of it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's not a great experience. So, and it works even less well in relationships. You can't, as an individual. Save a relationship or make it work or do anything in particular, you know, you can be fantastically great at communicating, but if you're communicating with someone who doesn't want to listen or communicate back, there's only so far that's going to go. And people can also be in really long, long term relationships that don't serve them if they Mm. don't know any better. Um, and that doesn't, you know, they've sort of not really learned anything. The kind of analogy I, I like to use is, and that's because I like games, but I'm also very bad at them, <laughs> is that, you know, you can play a game a certain number of times. I like could play a game for hours and hours, it doesn't mean that I'm really good at it. Um, so it's it's that kind of a thing. I think people want some kind of stability, especially when they're starting off in polyamory, because, you know, it's not something which is culturally normal to them or reinforced or you know endorsed so they're trying to find stability in any way they can and one of the ways that they find stability I find is by trying to find a quote-unquote more experienced partner Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just really helpful for them to remember that it's just not that simple unfortunately just because someone especially because one of the things I talk about is the way that leaders and communities um, can often be put on pedestals and they aren't as fantastic as you think they are. And I think one of the reasons people think that they're so great is because, oh, look, they've dated all these people. Mm-hmm. And I kind of made that assumption with the local community that I was in. I thought these people, you know, oh, they must be great because they have so many partners, um, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's that kind of a thing, just making people realize that just because someone has a lot of partners doesn't inherently mean that they're actually good at communicating.
3: Ain't that the truth? Um, (laughs) I I do have a follow up question to that. But you mentioned something interesting. Um, Yeah, this idea of seeking stability by trying to find someone who has, quote unquote, more experience, as it were. And there have been so many times when clients of mine have come to me being like, yeah, I started exploring non monogamy or polyamory, I started dating this guy, he said he'd been polyvered. 10 years or whatever, Um, and then as the conversation develops, it's like, oh, yes, this person has been practicing polyamory for 10 years, but they've been practicing really toxic polyamory for 10 Mm. years, you know, so you can't really make an assumption just based on length of time that this person Mm -hmm. is going to be the the one who's going to shepherd you into mm-hmm. into this unknown land of non-monogamy as it were. Um but my uh sorry Emily why don't you go ahead before I do my follow-up question on that?
1: No, yeah, all I was going to say to that is just a comment of yeah, exactly that I think often in monogamous tropes as well the uh indicator that a relationship is good or that it is succeeded is just the length of time in which you are with that person mm-hmm. and unfortunately like that probably also goes along in polyamory as well. Like, oh, well, clearly our relationship is great because we've sustained even challenges that, you know, have happened over many years or whatever, but that doesn't really necessarily, that's not a necessary indicator for whether or not the relationship is good or serving you, as you said.
0: Yeah.
3: Right, definitely.
2: Yeah, I've also, with that um, kind of seeking out experienced partners thing, I, I feel like there's also for people listening, I think some responsibility to take if you are the person in that more experienced position, because it's something that I noticed, especially in the past couple of years, that if, um, like with new partners, I would find them kind of expecting me to have all the answers or to tell them like how to do polyamory right. And before I realized that was happening... I don't think I was kind of as aware of how to address it, but since like starting to notice that I've, I'm like, Oh, Hey, like, I'm not, I'm not the expert on this. Like, this is, you know, this is your relationship too. Like, I want you to be an equal part in this, but it is like, yeah, people will try to just give that to you. Um, and I'm like, maybe mm. what's right for me isn't what's right for you. And I don't want to think just cause I'm more experienced that my way is better somehow.
3: Okay, well, actually, I think that's a different, different follow up question that I can ask Lola specifically (laughs) is because, okay, so the four of us are here, and we're in this kind of somewhat unique position of being people who like talk and write and produce content about non monogamous relationships. And there's always going to be some effect of that on one's personal life and relationships, like Jace's experience of like new partners expecting like, oh, yeah, Jace will have all the answers, you know, and he's going to know how to do this, right? I know for myself. I find myself getting really self-conscious and like if I have a new partner, I'm usually like, can you read a different book other than mine? Actually, (laughs) like I'm really flattered that you want to read my content, but like, but please, like I don't I don't want to get into a position of feeling like there's a weird dynamic of like I'm the one who dictates the right or wrong way to do this. Is that something that you've come across in your personal relationships, Lola?
0: So when before I even started of doing a, a podcast or a column, I you know i've always loved giving advice i've done a lot of um i've been a part of a lot of advice communities usually on live journal first um and first i kind of got into it more because i was really interested in um stis and safer sex and like trying to give people advice of that nature, but usually, you know, in, like, the live journal community sex tips, there's always a relationship aspect that usually comes along with sex advice or sex questions. It's mm-hmm. usually not, like, a physical question or a recommendation. Mm-hmm. There's usually some other relationship issue. Um, I also started giving advice on, like, the polyamory subreddit forums and things like that, and then one person sent me a question directly to me, and I was just like, okay, um, maybe there's something in this that I tend to give good enough advice that people are interested in me having a column. Um, It Mm. definitely wasn't sort of something that I established because I thought I was necessarily an expert. And what I try to do in all of my columns is be really honest about the stuff that I'm really not good at, and just be very forthright about the issues that I have. Um, I haven't necessarily come across tons of people who have me as an expert because probably because I'm t- to be honest and what I say in the column and the podcast I don't really like dating and I don't tend to do it very much um but I do always try to kind of put forth the idea that you know, I, it's easier to give advice than it is to take it and it's also easier to see a situation when you're not part of it. Yeah. And um, I think that I people have found my advice helpful and that's why I do it, not necessarily because I think I'm like the best relationship expert or anything like that. And there are definitely really, really huge things that I struggle with and that I try to be really, really honest with people about because I, I know that in my experience when I have given advice next to other people who have been kind of seen as content producers what has really irritated me about reading their advice and then trying to apply it into my life is not only that it didn't work very well but also that in in nowhere in their advice did they ever kind of admit to having the problems Mm. and I think that's a very specific thing in polyamory because there's a combination of issues first I think it's that people feel very pressured to be good PR for the polyamory community because because polyamory, like, when you when most people find out about it, they do think it's cool, but they also kind of are very skeptical about it, and they're like, oh, well, that will never work, you know, open relationships don't work. So I think they feel very pressured to represent um, a good sort of story for polyamory. And it's kind of similar to what I experienced. Like, I grew up with a lesbian mother, and I felt like, you know, there, my mom had relationships with abusive partners, but I felt like it was very important for us to present this front of stability because we had to kind of contradict the bigots. Um, And I do think that people in polyamorous polyamorous relationships feel that. And then I also think at the same time, you know, the way that polyamory advice is given and what people read is sort of like jealousy becomes this thing that's almost larger than life. And Mm -hmm. it becomes, instead of just a normal emotion that you can feel that's understandable in a lot of situations and isn't evil, I think it becomes this kind of... Terrible character flaw um, that is almost linked inevitably with abuse or manipulation or any of that, and I think people don't want to admit that they're jealous. Whenever they talk about jealousy, they always want to say, "Oh, I've been jealous, but I handled that and it's gone now." Mm-hmm. Um, and Forever. And so I think, yeah, yeah and it's it's Cute. handled and it's gone. It's exercised and I'm done with it. Um, but I think that it's you know. As well, the thing I also feel is that a lot of anytime someone experiences any negative emotion, it's immediately labeled as jealousy, even when mm. I don't really feel like it is. I mean, you can have that semantic nitpicky argument where we differentiate between jealousy or envy or la la la. But I do kind of feel like all of this pressure makes people think that they have to be you know, present themselves as perfect and, and that they don't have any problems. Um, and so what I always really try to do is say, like, I'm, I'm not perfect. Like, I do have problems. I do have very, very big problems with communication that will not be solved overnight. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, hopefully what I hope is that people don't necessarily see me as some kind of perfect, flawless individual who never has any problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of see me as a, people have found my advice useful I can see into situations that maybe they can't because I'm not a part of it. Um, and, you know, I tend to, because I've given advice for so long in lots of different situations, I tend to see very common tropes yeah. that can be addressed. So I'm hoping that I never run across a person who, I think if I did kind of date someone and they were like, said they were a fan of mine, that would be very awkward. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, uh-huh. I'm trying You're to like, avoid thanks. that. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. I think yeah. I think
3: I said this on our bonus content last week, maybe, but... And this sounds more woo-woo than I actually am, but uh, but it's kind of this idea of like the minute that you call yourself an expert in something, especially relationships, like then the universe is going to send a person or an experience that's going to knock you down 10 pegs from that. <laughs> and so that's why it's probably best to avoid marketing yourself as an expert just in general, because I feel like that's inevitable.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's... <laughs> It's funny, you just gave that example the other day. I don't remember if it was in that podcast episode mm-hmm. or something else, but I believe last time you described it it was ten people knocking you down one peg. Oh, okay. And now it's one person <laughs> it's knocking, you, person down 10 knocking pegs. you down. 10 it can pegs. be either.
3: You're gonna get knocked down ten pegs regardless whether it's ten people and experiences or one just whammy that comes out of nowhere two
2: pe- two yeah. people knocking you down five
1: yeah that each. Too. that's it it's yeah. gonna
3: happen though you have to you have I like to embrace the it
2: the different permutations <laughs>
1: of
3: this okay i think so, yeah yeah go ahead em.
1: <laughs> no just i was i was going to move on to the next one because we kind of touched on this a little bit but I think in uh, the time in which I know, Dedeker, you've been non-monogamous for like 10 years at this point in one fashion or another, but uh, the word polyamorous can be like a challenging identifier at times. And we've talked about this quite a lot on the podcast that just there are like negative connotations that can tend to come with them, with that word in general, and I believe that I've read that you struggle with that as well. Um, So can we elaborate on that a bit, kind of talk about that, just because I know that it's a challenging thing for for everyone here at times.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think, so when I have an article called Why I Don't Identify as Polly, and for me, labels are things which can be useful in terms of a quick sort of one word that explains to someone something very complicated. Um, I have a, something that I used to say, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it should. It always should be something that sort of enhances communication rather than kind of a list of behaviors or things that you have to have mm. um, in order to meet a certain criteria of something. Um, but for me, a label should enhance my life and not create a barrier for me. Um, And it should be a helpful part of communication. I found, and the thing that I struggled with, because when I started off um, reading a lot of polyamory content, there was always this very, very big emphasis on that. It's polyamory and not swinging. And this is very important because polyamory is about love. Mm. And swinging is just about sex. And, you know, it had that kind of negative connotation with Mm -hmm. it um in terms of like we want to differentiate ourselves from those swingers because they don't really care about love as much as we do and what I found and I I, from speaking with friends I do tend to find that polyamory communities tend to be kind of um what they call in the UK a postcode lottery so in some areas they're really really good in Mm. some areas they're really really bad and it just kind of completely depends on where you are Um, in the area and the community that I got involved with in London, what I tended to find was that even though people called themselves polyamorous, what they defined as love or a relationship really varied from person to person. Interesting. And I tended to find that even though I was interested in getting to know people, having relationships, valuing those relationships, what they wanted or what a lot of kind of people who are popular in the community wanted was just kind of a tab on you so that they could have sex with you later. Rather than it being actually about Mm. getting to know you or investing kind of any emotional energy into you Mm. or, you know, even just talking to you on a regular basis. Um, And I got quite frustrated with that. I was like, look, you I don't necessarily think it's bad to be interested in swinging, but you create this sort of categorization to differentiate yourself from swinging when actually the way that you behave is not necessarily that far from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't see a point in separating it and being so persnickety about it and, and almost being quite highfalutin or, or, you know, quite, you know, self-important about it, mm-hmm. if that's not actually the way that you behave. Um, and then I also quite got frustrated with the communities online and offline that I participated in because many of them were very headstrong against any kind of intersectional politics or any any kind mm. of social justice whatsoever. I mean, in some polyamory, like, communities and events that I went to, I would get confronted with, you know, we try to talk about, you know, LGBT issues or anything else. And they would just sort of be like, no, we want to talk about all of these other things. Um, and hmm. also, I kind of found that there was an assumption that polyamory and people who are polyamorous experience the same or attempt attempt to compare the experiences polyamorous people go through to the experiences of LGBT people. Um, And like, if you are LGBT and polyamorous, I think it's fair enough to say, these are my two experiences and how they compare and contrast. But there were a lot of straight and cisgender people who were very much wanting to put that in there and shoehorn that square peg into that round hole, no matter what anyone else said or how anyone else felt, um, for purposes that felt like that were more about power than necessarily were about trying to create a commonality of experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just felt like, you know, overall the communities weren't very diverse. Um, there was a, a lot of, a lot of people wanting to believe the best about polyamory and polyamorous communities, um, while ignoring, you know, the, Crappy behaviors that you know. It's the same thing in the BDSM community, mm-hmm. but I do feel like in some cases the BDSM community has made strides toward pointing out how okay, yes, BDSM isn't abuse. However, it can become a vehicle mm-hmm. for abuse mm-hmm. if wow. if people apply it in certain areas. And I feel like polyamory many of the communities I've been a part of still haven't got to that point where mm-hmm. they're willing to sort of realize the way the ways that polyamorous relationships can be a perfect vehicle for someone to be crappy to somebody. Totally. Um, So it's like basically that I came to a point where I was like, do I really want to call myself this unique special word that they're so intent upon using? when i don't really feel like it's that different from anything else and then i feel like later on as the discussion um came up about poly as a shortener being short actually short for polynesian and that being an issue um so many communities that i was in people were really angry about being told that they should change mm. that they should not use the word poly anymore um and even that kind of made me feel even more distant from it because i was just like well you can't even change a word. Yeah. You know, it's not like polyamory was carved into some stone that was found 3,000 years ago. Like, you made up the word, so you can change it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all words are made up, obviously, but <laughs> it's yeah. that kind of a thing, you know, where I just sort of felt like I don't really fit very well in this community, um, and it doesn't really reflect, calling myself that doesn't actually reflect what I mean. So what's the mm-hmm. point in using it, yeah. yeah, basically?
3: So that phrase you used, the post postcode lottery, is what you said. I really, I really like that a lot. I don't know if we have a similar phrase like that in American English. do think but, we do, yeah. But I think it's something that I often struggle with because I have a lot of clients and a lot of friends who just like really crave and really need community. You know, the mm-hmm. same way that to uh, different degrees we all do. You know, we all need this kind of interpersonal connection. Um, and it is so hard to be like. Hey, yes, look into local polyamory communities, but take it with a grain of salt. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad. It could be like totally amazing. It could really suck. Life-sustaining, yeah. it could really suck. I don't know. And that's that's really, really hard. Um, I think it's really hard whenever you have a community like this where we feel obliged to band together just with the other people who are using this particular label, because that's the only place that we feel safe. Um, Mm -hmm. I really think that the best communities are the less homogenous communities where it's a community that's not based on what our relationship format is, but is just based Mm -hmm. on, hey, it's a bunch of us who are very diverse in our identities and in our practices. And we're just cool with each other. And it's safe. You know, I know, in my personal experience, those have been the most satisfying and the most like, sustaining communities for me have been the ones that are not just based on polyamory but communities where I feel like I can enter and even though I'm non-monogamous it's not an issue um but I think that is really hard that that's really hard to find you know for a lot of people like sometimes the easiest shortcut for people is like okay well I'll just go on meetup and try to find a local polyamory community um yeah but my hope would be that that would be a stepping stone into finding just another generally more accepting community that isn't just based on relationship format. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to circle back a little bit um, to talking about the relationship skill thing. And I was wondering if you have an idea of a good way for someone to tell whether their relationship is going through a rough patch, and it is workable or fixable, or the relationship is incompatible, abusive, never going to work out, and maybe you're just trying to skill or hack your way out of a bad relationship.
0: Um, I think that in terms of like abuse, um, there's a really good book that I kind of recommend quite frequently on the podcast and the column called "Why Does He Do That?" by Lindy Bancroft. Mm-hmm. Um, And I recommend that book because I actually read it in my first experience of polyamory um, and ended up not meeting up with that, well, sort of first experience, but ended up not meeting up with that person because of that book. Um, And it was also enormously helpful for identifying abusive behaviors in any kind of relationship that I had. Um, because one of the, one of the best kind of bits of the book, if you don't get to read it, but if you need to know why it's so good is there was a conversation that the guy who wrote, who write who wrote it, um, he's a therapist and he was having a conversation with a woman and she just sort of says, well, you know, I make him mad and I, he loses his temper and, you know, maybe I shouldn't make him mad and he just loses control. Um, and he asks her two questions and he says, um, when he loses control, whose stuff does he destroy? Mm. And, and does he help you clean up after and it she has a kind of light bulb moment. she says, "Oh, actually, it's all my stuff he destroys, and he never helps me clean up after and he says, if he was really losing control, he would destroy anything in his path. He wouldn't pick certain mm. things to destroy, and if he really felt remorse, he would help you clean up um and it was those things because I do think when it comes to abuse. People tend to think that somebody has no control or they can't help it. um, And you really tend to underestimate how well thought out a lot of abusive Mm. behaviors are. Um, And so I think that's really useful. I do think that when it comes to um, identifying if it's workable or not, I think it comes down to what the specific disagreement is and if you have a shared vision of where you want the relationship to go. Wow, yeah, that's so important. Disagreement, like you can disagree on a lot of things that aren't in, integrally challenging to the relationship. You know, you can maybe like one big kind of disagreement or not really disagreement, but comb- com- com- side of kind of compromise that I made. I tend to be quite, you know, nervous about STIs because I have um, because of my disorder. I have a kind of weak immune system. Um, and ideally, my ideal situation would be that, you know, I always get someone tested before they sleep with me. Um, and ideally all of my partners would too. However, I recognize that, you know, I'm not a person that tends to go to an event, find someone and want to fool around with them. That just isn't usually how I interact with people, but I, I date people who do do that. And it's not really fair on them to be like, well, you have to get them tested before you touch them. And I recognize that as well um, because, you know, I, I realize that even though I behave a certain way and I have a certain comfort level, other people have different comfort levels, and there's no right or wrong, it's just different comfort levels. So we work on compromises about, you know, what kinds of activities would be protected, what kinds of situations would be okay, what kind of questions to ask the other person, so that we can both kind of find a median comfort level. It's not anyone's ideal situation on each side, but at least it provides a compromise that we can both feel comfortable with. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to freak out when there's a new sexual health risk i will have a a bit of a panic and i will feel anxious about it but it's workable it's not you know life ending anxiety or a situation where i'm you know panicking every you know i can't go to work because i'm panicking or something like that Mm. whereas like you know wanting to have kids or not wanting to have kids you can't really compromise on that and you really shouldn't compromise Mm. on that Mm -hmm. um wanting to live in a certain area you know with one person the kind of Example I use all the time with people is that, you know, it doesn't really matter how great or how much you both love each other or how much you want it to work. You know, if one person wants to, let's say, go traveling and wants to live in a an in a RV for the rest of their life, you can't really compromise on that. I mean, you sort of could, but would you be happy? So it's that kind of a thing of do you... Do you have an idea of how this would work together? Do you have a shared goal or a shared um, vision of, of the ideal situation? Can you compromise between your two ideals? Or are they so far apart from each other that there's just no way to actually compromise? And Or if making that compromise would basically lead mm. you to feeling constant resentment? Yeah,
3: yeah wow. that's, that's, a, that's a huge one. And I'm really glad that you pointed that out because we do have this cultural narrative of it's like, well, if you really love this person, any sacrifice is worth it. Right. If you really love this person, any sacrifice will make the relationship stronger. And if the relationship is stronger, then you'll be happy and, and feel loved and fulfilled and you won't feel any resentment. Um, and it's just so patently untrue, you know, see so many real life examples of someone who did really compromise on what it is that they wanted or did really compromise on what it is that they wanted in their life. And, you know, to make such a huge compromise just to keep a person in your life for, at least for me, I'm like, I don't think there's any person really worth that. I mean, I don't know, maybe this is me talking in hypotheticals. And so now I feel like the universe is going to send someone to knock me down some pegs. So maybe I should <laughs> stop talking.
2: <clears throat> well, it's, um, gosh, sorry. I started going off on another tangent there and I, I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, what was it? I guess just that, that idea of, I think we're told we're taught this idea of kind of like soulmates and the one. And it's this idea that like, oh, well, I feel something really strong. And that's what finding the one has been described as. Hmm. And if I believe that there is a one for me or a soulmate for me, then there can't be a problem that we can't get past because I did a double negative there, but you know, there, there can't <laughs> be any of these insurmountable problems because like fate doesn't work that way. And, and soulmates don't work that way. And I think even for a lot of us, like myself, who a long time ago kind of let go of this idea that a soulmate really exists or that, are, that there is a the one, that kind of belief pattern that goes with it, though, stuck around for me a lot longer. Mm. That idea yeah, of uh, like, it, but it has to be able to work, right? Because I'm in love. Mm.
0: And I think that like when you do care for someone and you really do want them around, especially if you're in situations where you know you don't have a lot of people in your life or you know if you came from an abusive background you don't have any other family you are going to want to keep those people in your life and i think you know there are situations as well where you're going you might have an inequity in your relationship like if one person doesn't have a job for example and you do and they're trying to find a job or you know i i have a disability where i may eventually go blind if i go blind i may rely on my domestic partner far more than anyone else would rely on them so but i think as well you know you can end up in a in a situation where you feel resentment or this situation is unequal and still make a compromise to get past it like in my situation like where i've supported someone financially for a long time and, you know, it, came, it sort of became something that came up in our relationship because if you feel like you've sacrificed a lot for somebody and you don't feel like they're willing to do the same for you or they kind of behave in ways that you're like, wait a minute, I've done all the unfun things. Now you get to have all the fun and that's not really fair. Mm. Then you kind of have to start addressing it. And we have kind of worked out a way to say, okay clearly we've had this financial instability and inequity for a long time, how do we actually address it? And it becomes kind of an uncomfortable subject of going, okay, how much money have I spent supporting this person? Can they actually pay me back for it? And that is not a fun conversation to have, but it's one of those things where like, you know, you, you do sometimes in relationships, especially if you're kind of the type of person that I am, where it's just like, I come from a background where I'm so used to giving and giving and giving, and I'm so used, I've also been socially told that I should be giving, Mm -hmm. that that's how I express love, that's how I should express love, is by being selfless. So I do tend to find that in all of my relationships, whether it's romantic or not, that my instinct immediately is to give and give and give, so that I become useful and helpful to somebody, and then therefore they they have some affection for me and one of the things i'm trying really really hard to learn now is to not over give because some people have good boundaries and some people are able to say hey Mm -hmm. i don't need all this stuff Whoa, whoa whoa but other people either they're trying to be nice by accepting what i'm giving them so they just accept it or they just don't care and they're willing to take advantage of me and it's one of those things where it's like you have to kind of be aware of how much you give and how much you you know, how much society is telling you that you should give um, because it will create resentment later. If not that the person, you know, completely doesn't care about you, it will also create resentment because, you know, if you are a giving person, they may just not be. And then that you're always going to have that inequity. Mm.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's such a challenging topic. We we had someone who was asking us for advice a while ago about a situation like that, where they had given a lot of financial support to a partner And then that turned into resentment for them and kind of expecting this person then to pay them back for it. And there is that thing of like, well, how clear was that? And how realistic was that when you started doing it? And it is, it is Mm -hmm. challenging because people, you know, try to just be like money, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it. But it's, it is one of those things that is also emotional as well as practical and, and logical
3: to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I.
1: So some of the stuff that you touched on in uh, your last answer kind of was a good segue into your article on toxic parenting and how it affects your relationships. I really, really liked that article. It was really powerful. Um, And it just occurred to me like... (laughs) It, because I feel like it would be a thing that I would use to send to people in my life who I know have had toxic parenting, or even partners. Uh, is that something that you ever do? Can you kind of elaborate on uh, if you use that article in the first place, and then also just how it's affected your relationships now, just that knowledge and the books that you've read and kind of more work on that uh, specific subject?
0: So when I initially kind of wrote the article, it was based off reading another article about the way toxic parenting impacts you just as a person. Um, And it, it, it really came from a desire to connect the dots because... I only, I mean, fairly recently, I'd say within the last five or six years, realized that some of the relationships that I had with my parents and with people around me were not healthy. Um, If you grow up with an unhealthy relationship, you have no basis for understanding that it's unhealthy. Um, And so, you know, through a lot of therapy, um, I was able to kind of realize that those relationships weren't working for me and kind of to separate myself slowly from um, my parents. My dad um, disowned me when I was sixteen, so that wasn't Jeez. like already happened. Um, but my mom, um, she come. It was quite difficult because my mom is um, has been through a lot and has been through a lot of abuse and you know she is also a lesbian and and that being a big part of my identity in terms of also being queer and you know growing up and going to prides with her and you know people talk about the queer community that they find when they leave their parents and they go <coughs> to bars and stuff mm. my mom was that community for me you know my mom was part of that uh, part of my identity in that way but she also has a lot of mental health challenges and is unwilling to get help for them and that c- caused a lot of problems in our relationship and once i started realizing that you know I, ha- I used to have panic attacks every day at work and I wasn't realizing why it was if you asked me like 6 years ago like do you think that your relationship with your mom isn't great I probably would have said oh there are a few problems but it's fine like and I also would have said she's the only one I have left you know mm-hmm. I don't talk to my other family members and so I didn't want to let her go um but I slowly kind of withdrew withdrew and then the more she kind of reacted to that and then you know She has um, borderline personality disorder, um, which means that she splits, um, and that's a big thing that she does in particular. So you're either 100% good or 100% bad. So when I started laying boundaries down, I went from being the best child in the world to a liar lying You know, like, that's kind of how it happens. Um, And as I began to understand how that impacted me, I realized why a lot of the polyamory advice wasn't helpful for me. In particular, Mm. the advice that's given about, you know, if you're scared that your partner will leave you or will find someone else to replace you, just tell yourself that your partner loves you for you and you're unique and special and wonderful. And, you know, it's like why would they leave you because they can't ever replace you because you're great. And that may work very well for some people, but you know, if you don't have any self-esteem to speak of, mm-hmm. because you've kind of been told by everyone in your life that you're not that great, or you've only been great if you do certain things, that's you know that kind of encouragement to give yourself isn't going to work at all. Um, so you know, it, your parents and the way that you grow up give you the basis for which relationships happen. You know, should happen if you grow up your entire life with parents who have weird relationships with you that are conditional or mm-hmm. that are based on you, your, you behaving a certain way or they just didn't pay any attention to you because I do feel like neglect is kind of a subject that's not really talked enough about. Yeah. Um, it's going to directly impact the way that you see relationships in the future. Um, like one of my first relationships, I you know, it was a person who was very nice, very lovely. I literally thought that the reason why he was great for me was that he didn't hit me. I didn't really realize there was more I could ask for. Um, And it didn't, it wasn't a bad relationship. It didn't end up working out as well because um, basically he wasn't very communicative at all. You know, he was very silent, very um, quiet. And in a way that was safe for me because I was used to people screaming and shouting. So I was like, oh, this is better. And it was better, but it didn't eventually end up working. Um, And I think it, keeping in mind kind of the way that I grew up and the way that I learned how to do things, is really really helpful for the relationships that I have now because like for example ca- classic case of me messing up I was with my partner they were visiting someone else that they were sort of dating um, and I was really tired and really exhausted and we miscommunicated about the time that my partner was supposed to meet me um, and there was like a shared group chat between me and the person that my partner was seeing and my partner and um, I sort of was like, "Oh, I'm here. Where are you guys? Are you on your way?" Um, and the person who was with my partner sort of wrote something like, "Oh, we're just putting our clothes on." Now, the person didn't mean for it to sound hmm. bad, but in my state, in kind of how upset and tired I was, I was like, "What?" And like, it sort of felt like a bit of a slap in the face. Hmm. And at this point, there's kind of two sides of my mind. One side of my mind is like, "Don't say anything about it. You're upset." nobody cares that you're upset, nobody is going to, you know, in, nobody's going to react positively if you say that you're upset, which is kind of a lesson that I've learned from growing up the way that I did, is that you showing that you are upset is a weakness, so keep it to yourself, mm. don't talk about it, go, go, go on with it, but then I'm trying to learn things from therapy, so I have this other side of my brain that says, no, you have to tell people when you're upset, you can't mm. keep it inside, you shouldn't bottle it up, you need to express that you're unhappy with something, and then... My other sort of side is going, well, but if you express it, they're going to make fun of you for it. They're not going to take you seriously because quite often growing up, if I did express any unhappiness, it was not okay for me to express that. I'd get made fun of or I'd get told to suck it up. Um, Mm. so then my two sides interact with the, the solution of being really passive aggressive. Mm. So Mm. I remember commenting, saying something like the extra information isn't needed. Please just let me know when you'll be here, which came off very, very harsh, Mm. which was kind of intended because my brain wanted me to express my feelings, but wanted me to do it in a way where I was aggressive about it. So I wouldn't be attacked. And, yeah. you know, that ended up upsetting the other person and we had a talk and it eventually ended up okay. But it's that kind of a thing where these learned responses to things are going to be things that you have to work through and work against. And it's not always as easy as just going, my partner loves me for me and I'm a great human being and they should love me. It's like, if you, you know, I really hate that. If you can't love yourself, you can't love anybody mm-hmm. else saying, because I, yeah. I feel like that's yeah. not true. Um, but. <laughs> It is much harder for you to have sympathy for other people and for you to be compassionate. And if you aren't compassionate towards yourself, um, it's going to be so much harder to deal with any situation if you if you spend a lot of your energy kicking yourself or whatever it is that you want to do. So it's I think it's really, really connected. Um, and it's also just not talked about so much of the polyamory advice, even that advice of like just you know, reassure yourself. It's just based on the assumption that you don't have a problem doing that. Mm. Um, and it just, I wanted to put something out there that was directly related to the problems that you'd specifically have in non-monogamy if you grew up, you know, not having healthy relationships, which are kind of like your relationships with your parents and how they do their relationship is kind of what you first expect and understand as normal. And if that's messed up, then it, you're always going to be behind a bit and understanding what normal is. I don't really like normal, but like, you
2: know, healthy rather than normal. Baseline, yeah. Yeah. This actually, some of what you were talking about there kind of reminded me of something that you'd said earlier, where you were talking about some frustration with kind of any negative emotion being called jealousy or being grouped in with that. And I was curious, like in this situation of like, you were upset about this, Information that felt like a slap in the face to you in the state that you were in and I feel like a lot of people would be like oh well because jealousy Uh, and I was wondering if if you could kind of talk a little bit more about maybe some other types of um, emotions or other examples of that of like things getting called jealousy when maybe that's not the most useful label to give them
0: so like I think it's a bit splitting hairs sometimes to to talk about what the official definition of jealousy is. But the definition that I use and what I find more helpful is literally when you want something that someone else has, Mm -hmm. pretty much. Um, And a lot of the times with my relationships, because I don't like parties very much, because I don't like dating very much, I'm not really jealous in the sense that I am... I'm jealous that my partner is sleeping with someone else because I want to sleep with someone else. Or necessarily that I'm jealous that they have time with my partner when I have plenty of time with my partner. Um, I think that, you know, the example that I gave, it, it also just doesn't... Sometimes I just feel like labeling it as jealousy creates more problems than it helps because it's just like, oh, will you... Like I said, jealousy becomes a character flaw rather hmm. than an understandable emotion. Um, there are plenty of times when you're going to feel jealous when it makes complete sense. Like I had one instance where um, my partner was sitting down, uh, another person that they were dating was visiting, and they were sitting in, in the living room watching um, films with this person, and I became incredibly jealous because every time I try to watch films with my partner, they were on their phone, they weren't paying attention, and they complained but here someone else was coming in and they were perfectly happy to do it with that person i wanted what they had yeah. um and that makes total sense like you know creating this idea of jealousy as um, just something you need to work through like how can I work through that I can't work through that if my partner isn't willing to do things for me that they're willing to do for other people there isn't any amount of, like I can reassure myself temporarily and I think I've compared it sort of to like having a life jacket on and topping yourself up like you can temporarily reassure yourself and my partner actually was doing that was like coming up occasionally and checking on me and making sure I was okay and that was probably the entire reason I didn't have a breakdown then and there but but I was really pissed off by this hmm. complete lack. And, like, actually, the next morning, um, uh, my partner texted me because they were trying to get sushi um, fish for, early in the morning. I gotten up early in the morning to make sushi for this person. And I was like, you won't even watch a film with me. Mm. You'll watch a film with mm. them, and you'll wake up at the crack of the dawn and, and go get, like, you're mad. You're texting me because you're mad that the sushi fish place is closed. And like, you know, I was, I I completely lost it at that point. So, you know, it's, I think it's, you can call it jealousy if you want. Like, I don't think that I was necessarily jealous that my partner was sleeping with someone else, you know, because sex for me kind of isn't, like, I I don't consider it that important, as important Hmm. as any other things. Our time is kind of the thing that I consider more important. I think it was just that it seemed, um, it seemed like they didn't care that I was upset And didn't care that I, you know, when I thought that we had agreed on a time to meet, if somebody sort of kind of, you know, whatever, oh, you know, that is really upsetting to me. And the thing Mm -hmm. also that I find really helpful is to apply the situation to a friend, you know, and and, and so if I was going to meet a friend and they were with someone that they were dating or whatever, and we'd agreed to meet at a certain time and they didn't show up (coughs) and then they had texted me, oh, I'm just putting my clothes on. I probably would still be annoyed with them, not necessarily because I want to sleep with whoever they're sleeping with, but because it's about the time and about a a lack of acknowledgement of you know what should be. Not doing what they said they would do. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So I think you know I'm 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 less wanting to you know pick 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 apart what jealousy has to or doesn't have to mean. I find it helpful to to really think about Is do you actually want the thing that your partner has? Is that actually what you want? Because I feel like if you focus so much on that, then the answer is always going to be wrong. If if the response to my my situation at that point was to say, oh, you're just jealous, just reassure yourself that you are great and your partner really does love you, that's great. But They missed an appointment with me. It doesn't matter how much they love me if they missed an appointment with me. Mm -hmm. So I think if you mislabel it, the advice that you then get is wrong. And furthermore, I think that like the advice given around jealousy is always just handle it yourself or, you know, it's an internal problem that you have to fix about yourself. If it's a reflection of your poor self esteem or it's, you know, it's never, you know, sometimes they will put in a bit about go to your partner for reassurance, but there's always this fear that you're going to be manipulative, you know, that jealousy will somehow turn you into this monster who manipulates people, or that, you know, by going in and telling my partner that I'm upset, that means that I don't want my partner to be able to go and meet anyone anymore. And it becomes like, it, it's a very real thing within like the relationships that I have now where I, I really stress that I need to have the freedom to be upset about something mm. without that meaning that they can't do something anymore. You know, I can be upset about something that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to do anything. And I think people often let that, you know, try to manage someone else's emotions by saying this kind of constant thing that I struggle I have with my partners. I'm like, Stop trying to manage my emotions. Stop trying to mm. prevent me from being upset about something. We can talk about it. I can't guarantee you that I won't be upset about it. But, you know, stop trying to prevent a situation by altering your behaviors or tiptoeing around mm. discussions in order to 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 address that and i think that the way that jealousy is just characterized as this horrible you know human flaw rather than an a, an understandable emotion you can have in a lot of situations that should be explored and understood rather than just considered to be the under worst the rug. thing yeah, yeah you have to address it rather than just going like oh, I'll handle this on my own because Mm. the inherent problems of whatever the jealousy represents aren't going to sometimes go away just by you patting yourself on the back.
3: Yeah. Well, what it reminds me of is I know something that I really wish that I'd learned much earlier in my own journey into non-monogamous relationships is I wish that I learned that like either jealousy or other negative emotions, whatever it is that comes up in reaction to something. Like I wish I'd learned to kind of put the filter on it of like, this is telling me that something here is important you know, whether it's, oh, this is important because this actually brings up some trauma from a past relationship. I should talk to my partner about that. I should talk to my therapist about that. I should work through that. Or it brings up, oh, hey, turns out it's important when I see my partner giving someone else something that they refuse to give to me, you know, like in the movie Mm -hmm. watching situation, like, oh, that seems like that's something that's important to me and that needs to be addressed. And I think I, I definitely spent far too much time you know, either either, like, you know, if jealousy or another negative emotion would come up, really treating it like the opposite, treating it like this isn't real, don't listen to it, just do what you can to kind of white knuckle through it, you know, meditate through it, spiritually bypass it, do whatever it is that you need to do. Um, And again, like, I do think that some people when they have jealousy, like some people do like benefit from like, okay, if I know that I have like a survival plan for it, at least so I can get through the evening when my partner's out on a date, like sure. Some people like really need that and really find use out of that. Um, However, I do think that is really important to just know like, like that there needs to be space around those emotions happening because they're telling you, usually it's just a very important message of some kind. I think it's
0: also like, one thing is I don't think people, I think when people start polyamory, they start it because they read a lot about it and they, they think it'll fix, sometimes they think it'll fix all their problems. And so they, they are confused when they start it and they don't feel great. And they automatically start to think, oh, well, if I'm experiencing so many negative feelings about my partner dating some, some, someone else, maybe I'm not really polyamorous mm. or I'm not really that. Mm. And th- the reality of the situation is sometimes when you try something new, you have very negative experiences and it doesn't mm-hmm. always mean that you're not cut out for for it and sometimes, like I say, like if you, you know you're nervous and scared about losing your partner, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes, you have the only way out is through, sometimes, the only way to learn how to deal with it, you know, is to go through it and know that you've survived it. And I think the pushing it under the rug thing mm. just makes it worse. If you, if you are, you know, if your partner is going out with someone new. And it's the first time and you're going to feel a wreck. You just will. And it doesn't mean anything Mm. bad about you. And yes, distract yourself, but also don't ignore it. Because I think that's the worst thing is just to pretend like it won't happen to you or ignore it and not address it. You know, it might just be that you're nervous and scared and there isn't necessarily anything your partner can do to fix that or assure you well enough that it won't go away. Sometimes you just have to sit with the anxiety and live through it and know that you come out just fine. Um, and, but you, you can't sit with it if you are just trying to pretend it isn't there. Mm.
2: Yeah. So we're coming up on the end of time here, uh, but we had one final question for you. And that's that, so earlier you mentioned that, um, y- you know, just from the years of giving advice and answering people's questions that you've noticed certain common tropes or, or certain kind of. I don't I don't want to call them universal, but, you know, cer- certain very common uh, things that you can kind of identify in these questions. And basically, like, thinking about all of that, is there one or maybe two things that you wish everyone knew before having to write into you? Something that's, like, kind of at the core of a lot of stuff like that?
0: I think one big thing that I do get a lot of letters about is people struggling with um, the difference between compartmentalizing other relationships and the difference between knowing what is and isn't your responsibility. Mm. Um, I think it's really, really hard for people because like in my first experiences with polyamory um, and I have a, I did a show actually on vice called the, my first time I talked about my first experience where I was basically used to cheat on somebody else Um, Mm. and I after that experience I was like I must know all of my metamors I must meet them and they must be my best friends and as well like there's this even though people say there's no one right right way to do polyamory I think the idealized version is one where you get along with all your metamors and you're a big happy family that like kitchen table polyamory thing which I only mm-hmm. recently discovered was a thing um, so I tried really hard to be best friends with them and that ended up me forcing relationships that I didn't enjoy and to be around people I didn't have anything in common with which just created more resentment and just created more frustration and I think people have a hard time you know they really go against don't ask don't tell and they really really go against situations where somebody doesn't want to talk to their metamor Um, and so they have a hard time figuring out where they should and shouldn't be involved and particularly I read a lot of situations where people write into me and sort of say my metamor doesn't like me what do I do and I sort of go well okay is this the end of the world just because you and your metamor don't get along and also is it your responsibility to address the situation. Like, sometimes mm. they know way too much about what's going on in, in between their partner and their partner's partner's relationships. Yeah. They don't need yeah. to yeah. know. Um, and, and I feel like, especially for, you know, women, self-identified women who write to me, they often take on that emotional labor of fixing or addressing the problems that are in their partner's relationship with their other metamorph. And I'm just like... Mm. That has nothing to do with you, and it's not for yeah. you to fix. Um, but people have such a hard time with that because you don't really get a, get a good idea of how how much you should or shouldn't be involved. And it almost seems bad to say, oh, I don't really want to meet any metamores. Um, that almost seems looked down upon a little bit because obviously the, the ideal is where you're all fluffy and friendly and get along in your one big happy family. And that would be great. But sometimes, I mean, it's just like if you're in monomo- uh, mon- a <laughs> monogamous relationship. <laughs> And you don't get along with your partner's family, you know? Like It doesn't mean you have to split up, but people feel like they have to be involved and that creates a lot more problems. So I just think that one thing I just wish people realized is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for how much you should or shouldn't be involved with a metamor. You can be best friends if that works out and you happen to be friends, that's great. It's not you being a terrible person if you don't want to talk to them or you don't get on with them. And also, like, if you find yourself being told about situations Mm. in your other partner's relationships. Like, it's one thing, like, obviously it's your partner and, like, they're going to want to, if they're feeling unhappy, they're not going to be like, oh, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. Like, they're going to tell you when they're unhappy. But I do feel like it's a situation where, you know, if you start being the therapist, if you start fixing their relationships with other people, then that's just, even if you're not even involved with that person, that's just not a situation that's good for you to be in because you are... by being their metamor, you are in a kind of advantageous position. And it is a little weird. Like a therapist, if you saw a therapist, a therapist would never see you and your partner and the person that your partner's dating. So why would you think that you're in a good position to fix that situation? Sometimes you're just not. And sometimes you're actually in a worse situation. And also don't like... A lot of times what I... One of the reasons why I stop calling myself polyamorous, and one thing that I do witness a lot of people do, is that polyamory can be a really great position for someone to be in if they basically want to have a lot of relationships with a lot of romance and a lot of sex and all that but they don't want to actually do emotional work mm. so they have yeah. as many partners as possible who they go to they don't have to do any emotional work for them they're not a primary of a, or whatever you want a domestic or anchor partner for any partner and they just basically just bounce from person to person without actually doing any emotional work because that's that they don't want to do that and i mean i think that's fine if you communicate that to people, but I think sometimes it doesn't get communicated, and people end up coming and writing me letters about this partner. You know, sees all these other people and doesn't pay any attention to me, or doesn't. You know, and I think that that's something to be really, really wary of. Is like, you know, are if you have a partner who is is so withdrawn from the situation that you feel like you need to talk to your or you need to fix the relationship problems that your metamor is coming to you with, then that really says something about the partner that you both share. Um. So yeah, things like that just kind of there's no one quick fix solution of where the boundary needs to exist between you and your metamor. but figure out something that works for you and don't feel bad um if if it you know you might have to compromise like there might be a situation i've sort of kind of go hands off with my metamors. like i'm not all that interested in like i'm just if they want to meet me fine like if they have a I need to meet this person rule. I'm absolutely fine with that. Some people have that for very good reasons. Yeah. Um. But you know, as long as you're willing to compromise on things, when there's a compromise that needs to be made, then that's fine. But like, it, there's no hard and fast rule, and don't like force yourself to to be friends with someone who you wouldn't be friends with normally because it's just gonna yeah. piss you off.
2: Yeah.
3: Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's that was, great that <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been a really awesome conversation. Yeah, really, I feel really like, interesting. I feel like we hit on so many different things, a lot of which I think is not specific to polyamory at all. Actually, I'd mm-hmm. say very, very little of this is specific to that. And so I, I love this, just kind of getting into all these little, just kind of dispelling some of those commonly held misconceptions about these things. Um, and just thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: So for those of you listening at home, we would love to hear your thoughts about this. What was your favorite piece of advice from this? Was there anything that was one of those like, oh my gosh, you know, mind-opening moments for you when you heard something today? Uh, We would love to hear from you. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook or Discord forums. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at or leave us a voicemail at 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistant is Nicole Samra. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on Multiamory.com.
3: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
2: (gasps)